0: On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for thirty-five years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started quest community, welcome to another solo cast. This time, we're going to take something out of the news again, uh, somewhat recently, within the last couple of months, in the wrestling and fighting world. This merger between WWE and the UFC is going to form a newly created, publicly traded company that they're going to create together, which will be controlled by Endeavor Group. Endeavor Group is the company that owns the UFC. And um, it will end up with Endeavor... Uh, owning 51% of the of the company, and the WWE shareholders will hold 49%. So obviously, the Endeavor folks are going to have the majority of the equity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have the majority of the control, although from what I gather in this deal, I think that will be the case, that Endeavor, the, the, the owner of UFC, will end up controlling the decision-making and things like that on the deal. Going forward, the reason I say it's not necessarily the case is because you know in capital structuring you can have economic ownership of fifty one percent, but through either voting classes of equity or through contractual rights or things like that, you may not necessarily control decisions. But again, in this case, I think Endeavor is going to have the controlling vote as well. And the deal values WWE at nine point three billion with the B dollars, and UFC at twelve point one billion. So UFC's valued higher which is probably the reason why they're getting higher. Now you'll notice there's something interesting, right? Because if you look at the math, if you just did the math on this, 12.1 billion and 9.3 billion, that's 12.1 out of 21.4, that's more than 51% in terms of the, the relative valuation. Now, I'm not involved in this deal. I don't know what the negotiations were, but there is something about a value, a control value of having that 51% that maybe, you know, played a role in in them not doing it straight by by percentage ownership or percentage of valuation, in which case Endeavor would have gotten a little higher than 51%, right? So I am expecting the transaction to close in, at the end of 2023, or in the second half, I should say, of 2023. And when this deal was announced, at least in terms of the article I read from last month, each of the company's shares had fallen a little bit. So 2% in the case of WWE and Endeavor went down by 5% you know, that would seem to indicate potentially the market's not as excited about about the deal, right? If if both parties' stock went down. Of course, listen, as I always say, there's a million factors that affect the stock market, and it's hard on any snapshot basis to uh, judge the implications of that. And of course, it wasn't huge amounts, it went down. So who knows what will happen as time goes on. But, you know, in, in public deals, you always have the reaction of the market as, you know, as a factor that people take into account, obviously you want in any kind of merger deal, you want one plus one to equal more than two, you know, three, four, five or 10 or whatever. And in the public market, stock prices is is a reflection of that, at least over time, certainly. So I'm sure they're hoping that, you know, as if this merger does go through, that things will go up. Now, here's the interesting part. There's some aspects of this that are interesting and that also provide some lessons for other deals. One factor is the there was an article, for example, that was speculating about the impact that wrestling fans, for example, were uh, the impact of, of UFC taking control, right? And whether or not the big WrestleMania will go back to pay-per-view because it used to be on pay-per-view, you have to pay separately. And now, you know, it's it's been a streaming so you don't have to pay separately. So, you know, th- there are some concerns about that and other things that customers, that wrestling fans have made. Now, whether that will affect the deal or not, I doubt it, right? In fact, even if they are planning on going back to paid, that would be a a business evaluation that would say, hey, we're going to, it's better, we're going to make more money that way, even if we do have a drop off, you know, and some fans who don't want to pay for it because they're used to being free. But it raises the bigger question about the stakeholders, right? Because in a a public deal, you know, certainly what, in any kind of deal, but, you know, what your customers and clients are going to think about the merger makes a difference, right? You know, if if a lot of customers are concerned about, it, they're negative about it, they lose business over, it could adversely affect the deal. That's the same in a private deal. So, for example, in the wealth management industry, in the RA space, where we do a lot of deals, there is pretty much always a contingency to closing of, of the ability to get client consent. Because, you know, in that industry, there's no long-term contracts. Clients can leave anytime. So it may be required under the agreement. In fact, there's always a requirement to get client consent. The only question is whether it's affirmative written, written consent, whether you can do it by negative consent, essentially sending sending a notice and saying, for example, if you don't object within 45 days, we're going to move your account. But the point is that that might be contractually and legally required, but also it helps assure the buyer that the, that the clients are okay with coming over, right? And there are always adjustment provisions in terms of callbacks, for example, and Things like that, if, you know, or even sometimes the a minimum that has to be met to even get the deal closed, but certainly clawbacks later if a minimum is not met, because that affects that affects the revenue. So there's always a concern about the view of a key stakeholder, which is customers and clients, on a deal. And these sort of reports to the press about concerns about the wrestling fans have, you know, are indicative of that. Again, whether that'll affect the deal or not, you know, who knows? Another key thing is uh, key stakeholder are clearly the owners of the various businesses, right? In, in any deal, you need to get approval for the deal, and obviously, in private deals, closely held companies with few owners, maybe it's easier. But the board may have authority in, in certain circumstances. But there are also you know state laws that allow different states sometimes owners of a certain percentage to you know have to approve. Deals, so you got to you got to satisfy those stakeholders, whether it's a big deal like the WWE, 8 UFC deal or it's a privately held smaller deal. Uh, you know, and then there could be employees as well. Right. As, as stakeholders that you want to make sure that, yeah, you know, you're not losing key people, that kind of stuff. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to corycupfer.com/assessment. That's corycupfer.com/assessment and filling out a few multiple-choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. One of the other things that was interesting about this article, these articles on the WWE UFC thing is they mentioned some of the issues that WWE has had. Vince McMahon, who's the father founded WWE, he took it over in the 80s. There's been some sexual harassment and other allegations against him that had him step back, but you know, he's still a major player. And, you know, that's has raised some concerns with some folks, as also some other Uh, allegations. Let me see what, uh, I guess there was a writer who filed a lawsuit against WWE claiming retaliation for being fired for pushing back against racist pitches in the writer's room. You know, so there's some, you know, there's some issues that WWE has that could affect public opinion, that could create liability. Obviously, UFC has evaluated those to the extent they have and made a decision that they're willing to move forward with the deal anyway. You know, in the deal docs, it's very possible that they're not, you know, that they're excluding liability for any of those known items. I I would think they are, right? They're going to leave that liability with the prior UFC and, you know, UFC owners, you know, so there are ways to structure to protect against that. But the reputational part of it is always part of your due diligence. You know, we've done a number of episodes on due diligence in recent times, and certainly, you know, one of the things of due diligence you're going to do is any, not only, you know, liability exposure, but any reputational risk exposure that might affect your company, right? That, you know, there's, there's obviously USC has decided that it's comfortable being, you know, or at least willing to be associated with Vince McMahon, even though he's become a controversial figure. You know, there's a fun little, fun, interesting quote in one of these articles by Vince about, well, by Jimmy Baxter, who's a pro wrestling commentator and podcaster. And his quote was, when the bombs drop, there will be three things left: cockroaches, Twinkies, and Vince McMahon. So people have their views on it, but one of the things you know, you do financial due diligence, you do legal due diligence, you do internal employee cultural due diligence, you know, and fit on business philosophy and business approach and and systems. Well, one of the things you definitely do some due diligence on is any reputational risk of a deal to your company that might be based upon doing business with your deal partner, and that could be true. In, a, in an M&A deal, you're acquiring a company. could be due, you know, due, true in a licensing deal. I mean, for example, in licensing deals, there's a there's reason why there are always certain clauses and standards in there that allow you to, as a licensor, if you've done it right, to be able to terminate the license if there's certain things that cause adverse reputational risk to the company by a licensee who is, you know, is doing something improper or something that will cause reputational risk. It's why there's quote-unquote morals clauses, you know, in some professional athlete or entertainer contracts, right? Because, again, the studios or the teams or whoever it is, TV stations, you know, want to be protected against that reputational risk and give them a a ability without breaching a contract to terminate somebody. So, you know, those things come into play. But obviously, in this case, the UFC has decided that, you know, they're willing to take those risks, you know, because WWE is a successful Franchise and Vince McMahon has, you know, led it that way despite his problems. And listen, I you know I'm not going to make a judgment here. You know, they they apparently he's going to be. I think let's see, Endeavor president and CEO Mark Shapiro will continue in those roles. McMahon's going to be executive chairman. So he says he's not going to be involved in the day to day executive chairman is also is often a you know I'm not going to say it's totally symbolic role, but you know it's a it's a role where. Somebody, you know, has a high level involvement, but maybe not as much influence. So maybe they felt, you know, by sort of keeping him upstairs, they, they, they minimized their, you know, or mitigated against their risk and that the upside really, you know, exceeds it. Some people might say that companies are the people who are have ju- negative judgment on these kind of things, you know, might conclude that, you know, it's all about the money and nobody cares about anything else. I, you know, I, I don't know, even, even if from a minority point of view, businesses make business evaluations about the average impact of some of these things versus the upside, you know, all the time. So they've at least done that. One of the that came up as I read through these articles on the deal that was, that was interesting is the reasons why this might be a great fit. And, you know, a couple of reasons why maybe, you know, maybe it won't, right? You know, we've certainly seen big mergers like this not work out, AOL Time Warner, you know, other things where, you know, you thought maybe there was synergies. And it turned out that it turned out, you know, that there weren't synergies or that there were cultural differences or differences that had the deal not work out. So, you know, in this case, um, WWE and UFC are different in some ways, in that uh, UFC is real fighting, meaning, you know, it's actual, it's, you know, more like boxing. And let's avoid the, for now, the arguments that maybe certainly with boxing and some of these things, some people argue are fixed. That's a different conversation, but I'm saying, but it's a, it's a true combat sport, whereas wrestling is—is is, um, some people call it fake. I mean, certainly these guys are anything about pro wrestling; they have to be athletic, and they do do these falls. But it's a show. It's—it's it's choreographed. It's you know, it's staged, right? So there is a difference there, and 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 some of it pointed out. Well, you know that that's the difference, and maybe those two cultures will not align because it's a difference between real fighters and you know and and folks that are putting on a show. You know, but on the flip side, they're both shows in a lot of ways, right? You know, in fact, many years ago, when I was a young associate, I worked at a law firm that represented Bob Arum and did some boxing work. And I did a little bit of it. And, you know, they always called the fight a show. That's how that's what they called it, right? Because the promoters were always looked at it like a show. There, There might be real combat going on there. But people were, I mean, you know, there's always hype around these big fights, right? It's one of the reasons why folks like Muhammad Ali, You know, and Sugar Ray Leonard and others, it was so popular, it's not just that they were great boxers, but, you know, they knew how to put on a show. They knew how to speak, and there'd be uh, ways they'd play it up and promote it and challenge the other folks and, you know, reasons why you have these scuffles during the weigh-ins. And, you know, there's a lot of promotion that goes on, even in sports where there's the real fighting, and the UFC is certainly like that. So that's where you might say there's a line, there's, you know, there's some alignment in the audience right? People who both, they, they, they've they mentioned there's been some overlap. Folks like Ron, Ronda Rousey was a USC fighter who also ref, wrestled. There's some other examples of that. But the bigger thing, and this is an interesting thing to look at in my mind, is because a lot of people on the outside don't really realize the value of some companies, right? But I remember, for example, years ago, very early in my career, I had a client who became a very, very good client of mine, one of my early clients, you know, on my own, who had a business where they, um, this is pre-internet. So they were providing information on schools and school districts and they was distributing it through real estate agents. So if somebody went and they w- were thinking about moving to in Connecticut to Walton or Stanford or Greenwich or whatever, they'd say, how to the schools, they'd be able to get a report. In those days, that report was, the order for the report was faxed in and then the report was snail mailed. So it shows you how long ago it was, but the point was that the, Company, my client at that time would gather data on schools and school districts, average SAT scores, percent of kids that go to college, different programs that were available in the school in terms of music or special ed or things like that. So there's all kinds of qualitative and quantitative data that they had that helped people, you know, look at different schools in different ways to see whether they were a good fit. And the company had raised some money. We helped them raise some money over time. Through various vehicles, I won't get into the details. There was a time when they ran into into some trouble. Things were were tight in the business model. The internet was coming in. They had shifted to an internet model. They realized data would be online. the very early days of the of the internet. Those in the nineties, and you know, the the venture capitalists wasn't investing in internet back then, so they couldn't get more capital that way. All this stuff was going on, and one of the things that I always knew, and I had a, I had an investment in the company actually, was that I thought there would always be value in this company. Even if it went under, but even more so, I thought the value of the company on a going forward basis was really all this information it gathered, right? The way it made money initially was by a subscription model early, right? Subscription days, where the real estate agents would subscribe and pay X about a month for unlimited reports, right? But on the back end, what they were doing is they were gathering data, which at that time, again, remember it's pre-internet, they would literally call schools to manually gather this data. They would have data on schools and school districts that wasn't easily accessible and nobody else had really compiled in the way they had. And that data was valuable. And obviously we've seen over the years now, you know, over the last 30 years, how much data-driven businesses and how much, you know, the value of data. So the reason why I thought about that is because uh, some may think that, you know, with WWE, with UFC, the value is that they have fights, right? And they put on these shows and they make money from that and they do. You know they have TV rights and and some of you know some of them may be paid and they get audience so that people pay for admission. But what they don't realize is that a lot of the value in both of these companies is actually the media library, the content that they built up over time, right? Because both of them, the UFC and WWE, do significant other things beyond just having the fights, right? You know they they have all kinds of content that they stream and put on traditional. You know media, and they have media rights and 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 celebrities that they promote, and you know and live obviously the live events. But they're both very very strong in terms of building up media content that they can repurpose, that they can use, and then they have you know cable deals and streaming deals, and you know some direct to consumer opportunities, and, you know stuff they do on their website. So there's a lot of value in that content and that access and those relationships in both. And both you know do that pretty well, and both do that similarly. So that's where a lot of the synergies can come in. So you know, I think that this deal could really be beneficial. Now, the thing that you you know you don't know is how the cultures are going to meld. You know, I don't know the internal cultures of you know US, UFC versus WWE, and that's where a lot of times things you know either fall apart or don't. So yeah, I mean, but 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 they have this track record of you know success with media rights that can really you know, that can really pay off. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, it's a high-profile merger. It's supposed to close sometime in the second half of 2023 here. So I don't know if that's July, August, or the fall, or later in the year. But, you know, I'll be following it. It also takes a company that traditionally has been private and owned by the McMahon's uh, public through this, uh, you know, endeavor. So that also creates certain liquidity, not only for the current owners, but the ability later to eventually raise more money. I don't know if they're planning on doing that. You know, at this point, McMahon's 77 years old. You know, he's agreed to step back. So it'll be interesting to see as the company. And, and obviously as a public company, if you're I mean, listen, you know, a, a well-known privately held company, these kind of allegations and issues certainly hit it, but public companies are way more careful about these kind of things. So it'll be interesting to see if any of this, you know, issues that WWE has had or McMahon has had, you know, cause problems, but I'm sure they're going to keep a tighter rein on things. That's the deal. They say here that WWE generated 1.29 billion in revenue last year, driven mainly by so this is what I was talking about before. A billion dollars of the 1.29 billion was generated by the media unit. So that tells you, you know, where where the real value is, right? And that's, you know, obviously what the UFC is mainly interested in. So, you know, it's a very, very interesting deal. We'll see if it goes through. Like I've said, the best solo guess is no guarantee every deal goes through, especially when you're involved in public companies. But, you know, but it seems like it's potentially a good match. Uh, and we'll see what, you know, how things develop. I mean, the streaming rights for WWE's contact, they have an exclusive deal with Peacock, which is NBC and all those. And, but that's set to expire in 2026. So that gives USC an opportunity to rebid that or change providers. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I think that's what I've got on this. So, again, I, as I've said in other podcasts, I like to follow these these public deals. They, they provide for interesting insights into how companies decide to make these deals, what they look at, what they overlook, and and, and don't allow or don't have adversely affect, at least their willingness to do the deal. You know, obviously, they might have structured again to protect themselves in some of these things. But uh, yeah, but it's, you know, and it's, I think it's always informative towards the deals that you may be doing as well. So, that's it for this week. Enjoy your week, folks. And check out next week's podcast, which will be with a guest, as we do uh, You know, a month, uh, every month. We have three guest podcasts and then then a solo guest. That's our rhythm. And most of you have listened to realize that. But for newer folks, that's what we do. And appreciate you listening. Take care now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to wwwcorycupfercom slash deal den. That's corycupfercom slash deal den. I'll see you there. I'm Cory Cupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.